This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Our second speaker is uh, Thomas Erickson, who um, is uh, again one of the most fertile uh, thinkers in the field of anthropology with respect to nationalism. He's written a whole range of books, including Ethnicity and Nationalism, Common Denominators, Ethnicity, Nation, and, and, and the Politics of Compromise in Mauritius, and uh, also Flag, Nation, and Identity in Europe and America. Um, He's written, um, he's also a, no one Norway's foremost public intellectuals. Um, so, uh, a man of great energy, imagination and ambition, and uh, he's going to speak on the grammars of inclusion and exclusion options for 20, 21st century nations. Thank you. Thanks very much. Real pleasure to be here. Important topic. Um, now that I talk about uh, exclusion and inclusion, we've done a lot of research on this back home regarding minorities in relation not only to the, you might say, the national imagined communities, but also in relation to local communities. Um, but the focus in much of this research has been largely sociological. Right? We've been looking at phenomena such as the labour markets, education, housing, civil society, that sort of thing. So what I'm going to talk about today is not uh, the same thing, but it's uh, something more ephemeral and difficult to study, but no less important than the emotional exclusion and inclusion. Now let me just start with a couple of small ethnographic vignettes, okay? In the 1970s, when I was a boy, we looked up to the Swedes from in Norway. We envied the Swedes, okay? Everybody, I mean, we never said this aloud, okay, but everybody really wanted to be Swedish. <laughs> At least where I lived. So nationalism was not very, very marked. It was not very marked in the 1970s in Norway. Much less than it was a couple of decades before and a couple of decades afterwards. And in Sweden, I mean, they had a lot of glamour, okay, and among other things, they had some great sportsmen. They had Björn Borg and Ingmar Stenmark, okay, who were the world's best in their respective sports, namely tennis and alpine skiing. Okay? Björn Borg never became a national icon in Sweden, at least not in the 70s and 80s. While Ingmar Stenmark did, he became a symbol of Sweden that many Swedes could identify with. He was uncontroversial and universally admired and loved. How can this be? Because tennis is a much larger sport than alpine skiing. And Björn Borg was arguably I mean, far more famous worldwide than Stenmark. How could that be? I'll, I'll give an answer to that later on, okay? Some of you may have the answer already, but I'll give the answer to you later on after I've gone through a number of other things. Now, the other little vignette I'd like to share with you is taken from a newspaper interview in often possibly the largest newspaper back home two or three years ago with Akhtar Chaudhry, who was then vice president of the parliament, meaning high up, you know, in the formal uh, political system member of parliament for the Socialist Left Party, where, among other things, he spoke about his Hajj and his pilgrimage to Mecca as a Muslim, okay, in the region of Pakistani origin, uh, and he had traveled with a number of other people in the same situation, that is to say, uh, Norwegian Muslims, 
gained Norwegian citizens, but Muslims by faith, who went on the Hajj to Mecca. And he mentioned in the interview how they had brought with them a Norwegian flag, you know, which is a cross flag, okay? Yeah. Um, so in the beginning, in the beginning, they only showed it sort of meekly and modestly. They just sort of uh, stuck it out of the window. One of those little flags, you know, on a wooden stick that you see everywhere in the country on uh, during national celebrations. So they just stuck it sort of meekly out. I mean, it was very dark. But then eventually they grew bolder, so they started to unfurl it. So they unfurled it completely and waved, waved this Norwegian cross flag uh, through the streets of Mecca, indicating that they were here and that they were Norwegian. Uh, now these two stories, I mean, uh, and that's another sort of vignette that I'm going to have to unpack, okay, but I'll wait a little bit, I'll do it later on. Uh, now, um, because I think there is something about the 21st century and nationhood, obviously there are continuities, but there are also some discontinuities, and there is something about this 21st century. Uh, now, um, in a book called Al-Qaeda, What It Means to Be Modern, many people's uh, favourite cultural pessimists, not least here at the LSE, namely John Gray, he ends the book by saying something about human nature and technology, um, about how human nature is unchanging, but has to relate to and adjust to changing technologies. Okay? Now this again, I mean, it, it shouldn't have been at the end of the book, it should have been at the start of the book, because what does he mean by human nature? He doesn't say. Now, in all justice, it must be added that in a couple of later books he has actually tried to develop his, uh, his pessimistic view of, uh, of human nature. But the point is here that there are some um, invariants in uh, what it means to be human. There are some universals regarding what it means to be human. And uh, those of us who are involved in, in comparative uh, studies of social life, be it from anthropology, history, politics, or sociology, we, we somehow have this at the back of our mind, no matter how particular our studies, we have it at the back of our mind. There is something which, is, which this particular little uh, study at this particular little place tells us about humanity, about what it means to be human. Durkheim and Maus knew this, and they put it, you know, in their own way in 1902 in a book called Primitive Classification, where they liken the totem, the totemic symbols of Australian tribes with flags. And as a matter of fact, I mean, more than half a century later, I mean, when the anthropologist uh, Victor Turner did fieldwork among the Ndembu in Zambia, and he was interested in, in ritual symbols. And I'm going to return to Victor Turner in a little while, in fact, because lots of people refer to Victor Turner when they write about symbols and the significance of symbols. You know, the emotional significance of a symbol, such as a flag, or a ritual, such as a national day. Um, but few people actually read it, <laughs> okay? Um, it's just a, 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 for a while it seemed as if everybody had read the title of Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities. <laughs> right? So, uh, so I'll go through some of uh, Turner's ideas also if there, is, uh, if there is time. I mean, but, uh, but the point is that he had an informant more than half a century after Durkheim and Moss wrote about uh, totemism in Australia from southern Africa, among the Ndembu, who said that, you know, the milk tree for us, because the milk tree was what Turner would call a multivocal symbol. A symbol that can mean many things. And he said that, you know, the milk tree, you know, it's a bit like uh, your flags. It's a bit like your flags. It was an educated informant who'd gone to school, who'd read newspapers. So he knew what the flag was. And he said that, you know, the milk tree is a bit like a flag. So in other words, in a sense, confirming, in a way, uh, the view that there are certain dimensions of human nature. Uh, that there is, to answer John's uh, comment uh, uh, during his introduction, Yes, I mean, there is a need, and maybe there is a need to belong. It may not be universally shared, but it crops up, and it becomes more and more 
uh, I would say, more and more um, a scarce resource. Yes, it has been a scarce resource before, but it comes a scarce resource in new ways, because there is something peculiar about this 21st century. It is not just that people like Gregory and I speak really fast, you know? Everybody does. I mean, the speed of speech has accelerated since the 1950s. And I'm not, I'm not just making this up. I mean, we have measurements which, which prove that the speed of speech has accelerated. And it's probably accelerated even more during the last decade. I haven't seen the figures for the last decade, but because of, I mean, all the new technologies that people are relate to, everybody is a, bit, a little bit stressed, you know. Everybody is a little bit, you know, five seconds behind. Um, and you never have the time to have a conversation with someone because you have to text your girlfriend, you know. <laughs> you know, that's, we live in that kind of world. And the world after 1991, I say that, you know, the 21st century started in 1991, okay? Um, on the 17th of January, 1991. Um, it started, certainly it started for us Norwegians, because one of the symbols of continuity in Norway was the king, who died on the 17th of January 1991. And he symbolized not just solidarity, but also continuity. And what we're doing with ritual symbols and with large-scale ritual events, such as national days and similar events, is not just to try and stir the soul and instill a sense of solidarity but also to instill a sense of continuity, that we know where we're coming from and how we got to be where we are. Now, the king died, and it was a nightmare for the newspaper editors, you know, because they'd been looking forward to that headline. But then something of, of a similar magnitude, seen from the Norwegian perspective, happened uh, exactly on the same day, namely the start of the first Gulf War. Okay? Uh, so they had sort of two world events, seen from a Norwegian perspective. The death of the king and the start of the uh, of the of the, Gulf, of the first Gulf War. Now, uh, this was an important day for for other reasons as well, because it created a situation where all of a sudden the entire nation seemed to go into mourning, which was an odd thing because the king was an old man, you know, and he had been ill with cancer. He was a chain smoker, you know. He smoked the unfiltered cigarettes. Okay, uh, he did a bit of skiing, but not much. You know? <laughs> uh, he enjoyed the, he enjoyed his wine and his hags, and he was in his eighties and had been ill for some time, so he was expected to die. Uh, but the, it still created a sense of mourning and a sense of loss. And I believe that at some subliminal, unconscious level, Norwegians uh, were aware that the security and continuity of the industrial post-war era, about which we had so many compelling narratives, how we were brought sort of, from agrarian society through industrialism and to uh, the welfare state, uh, how, how that had been somehow um, broken off, it had been the, the bond of the time of the past had been severed and we had been thrust into the era of postmodern, neoliberal, uh, globalized, uh, uh, multicultural information society. I mean, I'm not saying that all this happened on one day, you realize what you see what I mean. But that if we want to create a generality for the 21st century, I think we could do worse than uh, choosing 1991. And since then, in the last, say, uh, 20 years or so, we've seen an acceleration of change in many areas. Now, Gregory, how the, you are the Colombian newspaper, okay? I've got the Mexican one. <laughs> I came to think about, as you spoke of, of uh, the Colombian uh, newspaper, that in the, in the city of Cancun, there's a newspaper, well, there are several newspapers. None of them are very old, because the city didn't exist uh, 35 years ago. There was nothing. There wasn't even a fishing village. And now it's a city the size of Oslo, six, seven hundred thousand people. And in this local newspaper, I forgot the name of the newspaper, but I visited the area 
Yucatan. Some years ago, there was a rather large article about the identity of Cancun. We have to create an identity because we don't have one. I mean, people who live there come from all over the place. Some are even foreign, or they come from all over Mexico. So we need an identity. We need to have a local identity. I mean, we don't have it. We've got half a million people, and we do rather well because we have tourists who come all year round, but we don't have an identity. So in other words, the point I'm making is that this city had grown from nothing to more than half a million in about 30 years. And if you look at urban growth in general, it's, uh, it's, it's massive, you know, in most parts of the world, it's massive. You take a city like Nuachot in uh, uh, the capital of, uh, of Mauritania, uh, which was designed by the French in the late 1950s to be an uh, administrative and trade center for the colonial adventure in, in, uh, in West Africa. So it was uh, built with an infrastructure meant to accommodate somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people, okay? And it now has a population of Nobody knows, uh, but maybe a couple of million. Okay, maybe a couple of million. And uh, you could go to Dakar, um, where the, where the, uh, where the you know, um, which has grown by a factor of 40 in a few decades. A factor of 40. It's, it's grown 40 times. Or you could take Sao Paulo, the, the traffic in Sao Paulo, where 1,000 new cars enter the roads every day. Okay? And you imagine what it's like to go on a weekend trip out of Sao Paulo on Friday afternoon during the rush hours. Uh, they had, uh, uh, they had uh, the world record in traffic jams, 550 kilometers of traffic jam on the, on the evening, I think it was in November 2011, it was measured. Um, and one could go on, exponential growth. Tourism, people already in the late 1970s were complaining about how North European tourism was uh, ruining Spain, you know, because Spain was no longer Spanish as it used to be, because you could get Svenska Köttbullar, Swedish meatballs. <laughs> You know, in their restaurants, on the Costa del Sol, and uh, and so on, and the British pub, you know, with with pub food, you know, and and, and so on. Uh, but uh, they hadn't even seen, well, they only seen the beginnings because by the in, in the late 1970s, the total number of tourist arrivals in Spain was less than 15 million, and we're now talking about 60 million. Last year, uh, the uh, global number of international tourist arrivals uh, it surpassed for the first time in history one billion. Okay, one billion international tourist arrivals. Uh, so we're talking about some fairly steep growth curves, and I haven't, and I don't, I don't have the time. I mean, and I haven't even mentioned information technology, communication technology, which are the examples most typically invoked when people talk, talk about accelerated exponential change. So, in other words, if continuity and solidarity were scarce resources in the 20th century, in a century where, as Egmont Bauman puts it, a bit. Uh, in a bit exaggerated uh, fashion, I mean, uh, when everybody is on the move, as he says, the world is on the move. In, in this in this, at this time, um, it is becoming an even more precarious and even more scarce resource. And in, I, I guess maybe even in some new ways. So clearly, um, <coughs> you need, we need in this, kind of, uh, in this kind of society, not only to develop new traffic rules, to avoid, you know, total, I mean, uh, uh, gridlocks, okay, global gridlocks, gridlocks. I'm not speaking metaphorically, okay? And I've shifted from Sao Paulo to, uh, to the loftier uh, world of metaphors, but we need uh, the new traffic rules in order to avoid the global uh, traffic jams, gridlocks, and, uh, and horrible accidents, but uh, we also need new grammars of inclusion. Or, or you could say entrance tickets into communities, be they national or something else, but let's stick to the national now. Uh, entrance tickets into national communities, which are sufficiently inexpensive. Um, some countries have tried to um, integrate in immigrants through uh, cultural tests, 
Okay, cultural tests. I mean, you, you, you have to pass a test in order to show that you're familiar with the culture. But I mean, it turned out in Denmark, <laughs> which tried this some years ago, that they tried it, you know, probably left of center newspapers tried it on uh, ordinary days, ethnic days, who lived in the country all their lives, and they didn't pass it. <laughs> right, so how can you expect the Pakistani who came last year? When was Erdenschläger born, you know? Uh, what did Hans Christian Andersen eat for lunch? Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, so you need, we need, I mean, so we need something else. So perhaps what is, what is needed in order to create a sense of, of, of continuity, solidarity, um, which is the objective here, seen from the perspective of social cohesion. Uh, maybe what, what we need is something as simple as those uh, icons, those international icons that you typically see at airports, yeah, in airports. But maybe they're not thick enough. You know, maybe they're too thin. But the, this is the kind of this is the kind of discussion that I'd like to um, to, to engage with. Um, so um, yeah, so we need those. Uh, you, yes, in order to have belonging, you need those. Uh, you need symbols. You need ritual events, and you need something that works. And you need increasingly something that works for people with diverse experiences in a world in turmoil, where there is a lot of fast change. How to create an illusion of continuity in a world with accelerated change? That is the problem. Now, this hasn't, it has, this has never not been a problem. I mean, as John Hutchinson writes about in his book, Modern Nationalism, I mean, you've got three examples, correct me if I remember wrongly, but there are three examples of great post-colonial settler nations which had all at different times decided to celebrate the beginnings okay, of the colony. So you had Canada in 1968, uh, the United States in 1976, uh, the bicentennial, and Australia in 1988. And all of these attempts to create large-scale national rituals that uh, engaged everybody and stirred the souls and instilled the sense of solidarity and continuity, they started to go wrong really very early. You know? Even before they got off the drawing board, they started to go wrong. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I haven't looked at your book for some years, so I might have gotten it wrong. But anyway, I'll, so I'll take the Australian case, which is the one with, with which I'm most familiar, just to illustrate what went wrong. The idea was to have one tall ship sailing into Sydney Harbour, uh, symbolising the first fleet, 1788, okay? But it immediately provoked protests. Of course, protests from Aborigines, who would say, you know, what, 200 years uh, to 40,000, okay? Um, and, uh, and they celebrate, some Aboriginal organisations, in fact, the, the, till this day, they celebrate Invasion Day rather than <laughs> Australia Day, okay? Invasion Day, January 26th. So you have the Aborigines, that was quite clear, you know, they'd simply been forgotten, momentarily forgotten. But then, uh, so they decided, so okay, we're going to have to have a second ship representing the Aborigines. So everybody can be happy. And, um, but then the, the thing is that there are quite a few million Australians who consider themselves card carrying Australians and are considered card carrying Australians but are not descendants in any way of the people who came on the first fleet. People who are descendants of more recent immigrants. I mean, you have the large South European, I mean, the Greek Italian communities in Melbourne, for example, quite a few Scandinavians, and various other communities who had arrived at later stages, I mean, in association with the gold rushes of the mid 19th century. So they, they also protested. They did not feel that their, their identity as Australians was sufficiently represented. So, in other words, uh, a third ship. Okay. So now, uh, now when you 
go to Sydney and you watch the Australia Day celebrations with the fireworks, with rock music and the speeches uh, from the politicians, you will see the uh, three sort of tall ships sailing into sailing majestically into the harbour. In other words, if you cannot find a unifying symbol, you have to settle for the next best thing, a bad compromise. That makes nobody happy, but uh, which at least does not uh, uh, create a major sort of uh, outrage. Okay, so these, uh, these are the issues with which we, we deal when we, think in terms of, when we think about national symbolism. How to create a, a, a narrative, a, a dramaturgy, and a, a, a set of symbols that can uh, unite people. Durkheim and Morse, of course, did not see this problem. Talking largely, well, they were Durkheimers after all, weren't they? Um, and talking largely about small stateless societies. So th their assumption was that uh, the ritual uh, symbols, such as the totems, that they did simply unite people, that they did make people feel the same. And uh, most of the societies with which they dealt in primitive classification were also were based on what they called, or what they can call mechanical solidarity. In other words, there was little by way of division of labor, little by way of uh, diversity within the communities. The way they saw it, the way they thought it was, probably there was more. They probably underestimated the diversity even in Australian Aboriginal tribes. But when, but when Victor Turner came and began, began to write like ritual symbols, in other words, symbols performing some of the same work okay, as flags and national days do for modern states in a tribal society, in what is now Zambia. Uh, he saw this issue, he saw the problem of diversity, the problem of creating an illusion of unity among diverse populations. So even in a tribal society with little, little internal differentiation, there was this issue of diversity, of problems, uh, which was a problem. Another problem that Turner saw was that, which is also, I mean, a, a, a chronic problem in nationalism, that of the formal and the informal, as I call it, or the state and society, the state and people. How to produce that hinge which creates a sense of loyalty and uh, um, belonging to a state, which is an impersonal uh, entity. Uh, how to do that? Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, anyway, Turner, in his work, uh, among them, then, distinguished between two points of significance, the ideological and the sensory. In other words, the political, that which makes you uh, somehow loyal to uh, the, the chief and to the powers that be, and the emotional, you know, which is no less important, which had been underestimated by many of his contemporaries among the British anthropologists in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and he points out that the sensory, at the sensory point, the signs are the signs which are being produced are natural or physiological phenomena and processes that arouse desires and feelings. So one single dominant ritual symbol comprises both, as it were, a natural necessity and a social need or desire. It, quote, it represents both the obligatory and the desirable. Here we have an intimate union of the material and the moral, unquote. In other words, the political and the emotional. So that's how they, uh, they should work. I mean, uh, put differently, ritual symbols are multivocal and can be interpreted in a variety of ways by different people in different situations. And in this ambiguity, as you would know, lies both the, uh, I mean, the, uh, the persuasive and unifying, potentially unifying power of both totemic animals and well, modern. Oh. All right. <laughs> oh, we've got 15 pages left. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't worry. Not, uh, okay, but so, so let's move on. I mean, that's that term uh, and his emphasis on the uh, on the emotional, on the experiential. He, he coined the term term communitas uh, to the Latin word communitas. He used that in order to describe not the rational aspects of belonging. You know, you vote, you're a citizen. I mean, things which are easy to study for social scientists, okay? Which can be quantified. Are you a citizen or are you? And if you are a citizen, you're inside. Well, he knew that no, it's not enough because you have to, uh, you have to uh, be emotionally attached to the community and the rest of the community have to um, accept you as a part of this. Now, Benedict Anderson also saw this duality in, in I mean, uh, if you move on a little bit from the title, can you read the first of the introduction to uh, um, Imagine Communities? He says, I think it's on page six, he says that uh, nationalism in one of the most quoted passages from the book. So I'm not, I'm not making this up now, I and mean, it's not entirely original, but I thought I might, it bears repeating because it, it resonates really nicely with Victor Turner's earlier analysis of the workings of symbols, how symbols work both politically, instrumentally, and emotionally, okay? And Anderson says in the introduction to Imagine Communities that, well, you know, nationalism is a bit more like phenomena, it resembles phenomena like kinship and religion more than it resembles ideologies such as liberalism and, uh, and socialism. In other words, that it's emotional, and, uh, and it is, as I would put it, a, a form of metaphorical uh, kinship. Uh, now, uh, I have to move quickly because I'm going to have to return to my to, to the little examples I, I had at the beginning. Okay, and I need about half a minute for each of those. Uh, but let me let me add that uh, there is something about uh, national celebrations, and which has probably not been studied enough, and which makes them different from other kinds of ritual celebrations, namely the emphasis on violence and sacrifice. Violence and sacrifice. Uh, I mean, in order for the boundaries to be protected effectively, sacrifice is necessary. So, uh, uh, if you think about it, even in the very benign and, and sort of upbeat and positive Norwegian national anthem, there are passages that uh, remind us of the sacrifice made by earlier generations. Now, there are Norwegians in the audience, so correct me if I don't remember the lines. I'm not a very good uh, Norwegian, so I, I tend to forget these, uh, these lines. But there's something about Yes, as the fathers have fought and the mothers have wept. You know, it's, it, in no uncertain terms, it, it sort of it symbolizes sacrifice. The National Day is a kind of day where you may lay down, down flowers at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And if you use the tomb of the unknown soldier to, to grill the sausage, you know, <laughs> you're, say you're in Australia visiting France, and you say, ah, we're not out of barbecues here as well. <laughs> Might well you have a sausage sizzle. You, 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 you're arrested, and you may be sentenced to, I mean, several years in prison. Because it's uh, it's a sacred. It's, it's there's something sacred, okay, about the uh, the emphasis on sacrifice and on the national days and the national symbolism. It's uh, uh, it's what makes it uh, perhaps uh, resemble religion the most. Now I have to skip a few pages. It doesn't really matter. I've said most of what I had to say about the multiplicality of symbols, the increased uh, precarity of uh, a sense of solidarity and continuity in the at a time where there is a lot of turmoil, the continuity with a pre-state world where symbols were used pretty much to the same effect and the emphasis on sacrifice. Um, and, uh, and the tension, finally, the final, final, final thing, okay? I think that was the fifth thing, uh, the tension between what we can call the formal and the informal. Of course, if the state is not, uh, it's not legitimate, you'll find your own rituals, your own symbols. 
which are not connected to the state. Uh, in which case the state may, uh, in the long term, have a problem. And, uh, and this is probably, uh, probably more widespread than many people are aware of, even in uh, countries which apparently are uh, very well integrated. Now there are practices. I'm coming to my examples now, okay, the little vignettes. There are, there are practices which are associated with attaquements uh, profonde, you know, with deep belonging. For example, uh, in Australia, the barbecue. You know, I mean, if you go out, I mean, you put on your sunnies and your shorts and you go and have a barbecue, it's, it's, it's okay, it doesn't really matter where you're from. You know, and in Norway, if you go out in nature, in winter, cross-country skiing, in summer, hike in the mountains with a backpack. Unshaven. You know? Uh, I mean, if, I, as I tell my immigrant friends, you do that. I mean, take your Norwegian classes. That's okay. Learn the language. But that's not the most important thing. Go out in nature. It melts the hearts of Norwegians. Uh, they, they're never going to check your religion or your skin color afterwards. So clearly, we have these activities. But these activities are not available to everybody. And this is why I'm saying that maybe what... what uh, 21st century nations are going to need increasingly are uh, iconographies that is, resemble the icons uh, of airports which, but which are still unique and which are sufficiently flexible to be uh, used for many purposes. Now back to my example very quickly. Ingmar Stenmark was a very quiet man. He never spoke much. He was from the deep forests, you know, in northern Sweden, okay? but he was the world's foremost alpine skier. So whenever he was asked on TV or by some journalist, I mean, how, how the hell can you, you know, go so fast? I mean, year in, year out, you're the world's best. How do you do it? And he would look at them and say, where do I walk? It means, I just go, you know, you just have to go. And he didn't, in that point, he didn't have anything more to say. He was not the, he was not the showman. Uh, so, so in other words, he was an empty symbol, like an ideal flag that could be filled with different content by different people. So you could approach Ingmar Stenar from any direction and identify with him, because he had so little by way of substance. Now with Bjorn Borg, the situation was different. You see what I mean? Like, you know, like a fact. In other words, a multicultural society could be integrated through a symbol like Ingmar Stenar, because uh, he him, in himself represented so little by way of substance, and at the same time was Swedish, so that you could become Swedish by looking at Stenar. With Borg, it was different, because he moved to Monaco, I mean, as a, as a tax refugee, okay? And there were stories about fast cars and pretty girls and cocaine and you know there were rumors about Jan Borg which made him controversial because he had too much of a personality. So people would, would either defend him or attack him. He could never become a unifying symbol. Too much substance. And the discussion that is being uh, had in some European countries around flags, around the cross flag, going along these lines. Now that a growing part of the population are no longer Christian, can we use the cross flag? You know, can we have a cross flag which symbolizes Christianity? Wouldn't that be a symbol of exclusion for a growing minority or even majority who don't identify with Christianity? Well, the answer, according to Akhtar Chaudhry, is no. Who, uh, who, the, the, the Pakistani Norwegian politician who waved, happily waved the flag in Mecca. But his multivocal, rather his use of this multivocal symbol, which like like the Ndembu milk tree that people I mean, when Victor Turner asked people about the milk tree, they would, they would uh, depending on whom he spoke to, they would give him different answers because it meant different things to different people. But everybody agreed that it was a key symbol in their ritual life. But it meant 10, 15 different things. So the similar, similarly with the flag. But, but you know, Chorby also used this multivocal symbol in a multivocal way because what does it mean for a Pakistani Norwegian Muslim to wave a Norwegian flag in Mecca? Does it mean that 
world domination is coming. We're taking over Norway as well and turning it into part of the caliphate. You know, that, that is a bold interpretation which I've heard. Huh? Whereas the opposite, and more credible and more you know, obvious interpretation is that uh, we can be, uh, um, we, are, we are faithful Muslims in spite of the fact that we live in that uh, strange, cold, expensive, uh, <laughs> and so on, uh, country so far to the north and in fact comprise the world's northernmost South Asian population. And we can still be Muslim in spite of the fact that we are culturally different because the religion unites us. So uh, and there are other interpretations too that I'm not coming into now, but the, the point is this, that for in the 21st century, um, if you want to create a sense of um, solidarity and of continuity, it's going to be hard work, and we're going to have to look for entrance tickets which are not too expensive. Okay. Thank you. The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfil two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our programme of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ASIN Events.